What follows is my interview with George Valdez, who was charged with being a co-conspirator in the biggest drug transaction in the history of the United States. Before he started working with Pablo Escobar, George in the 1970s was already coordinating shipments of up to 700 kilos of cocaine. Now, this is back when it was going from anywhere from 50 to $100,000 a kilo, so you run the math. George was captured when a plane went down in Panama and incarcerated and tortured by the guys working for General Noriega, as well as his extensive knowledge of the Medellin cartel, he has a very important message about the war on drugs. While I was communicating with George to arrange this interview, he admitted that he had already in his possession my War on Drugs series of books, in which I claim that governments all over the world put in prison the small fry to show they're fighting the war on drugs while working with the big players to make money from illegal drug trafficking. And George was at that level of the big players and he absolutely confirms what I've been writing about. So this two hour interview is not only hardcore trafficking stories, it's also got important social criticism about the corruption and the war on drugs. George could buy politicians, legislators, judges, not just in Central and South America, but also in the States. And he believes it is still going on to this day. He also has an important social message for young people. And you think of someone like, you know, the traffickers represented by narcos, which George admits narcos is just a fairy tale. These scary looking people killing people left and right. You would never imagine the man you are about to meet was a drug trafficker of the magnitude I have described. Biggest drug trafficker ever to be interviewed on this channel. Probably coordinated more transactions than all the others that I've interviewed on this channel combined. So I hope you enjoy. The interview with George. Cheers. You got behind you? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's all been revised now with this new book I wrote. So, uh, Daniel, so what, what all are you going to change? Oh, how Pablo died. After reading Don Berner's book and reading the book by Carlos Castaño, it, it completely changed my understanding of what happened that day. Really? Uh, how do you think that he died? I believe that Don Berner and his guys, which were being run by the Castaño brothers, 
Don Burnley's guys were the guys on the ground that day. They had a few cops with them, but the cops were generally scared to go in. Los Pepe's would go in, cops come and get the credit because they were the illegal death squad. And that's what happened on the day, I believe. I mean, they had uh, frequency, Lieutenant, the, the, the guy's uh, son, the, the, the search bot guy's son with the, with tr the tracking equipment, frequency, uh, helping them. They were all working together, but the, 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 was it Gaviria? He rolled out a bunch of cops and he said to the media, make these guys heroes. These are the guys who killed Pablo Escobar. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, I'll tell you what, my personal opinion yeah. is uh, he committed suicide. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, and I'll tell you one thing. I, I mean, there's things, something I, I know that nobody, nobody in the world really knows. And uh, Pablo was trying to uh, work out a deal with the government. Uh, literally, literally, uh, a month before, before he died. And uh, he knew that the only way that his, and when the gov that was his last shot. And when the government, I mean, he offered the Clinton administration, I don't know, paid the external debt, 500 million, uh, turn in every lab in Colombia, <laughs> turn everybody in. Yeah. And uh, they turned him down, you know, and uh, I was privy to a conversation. Uh, with someone that he sent over when I was in prison and, uh, and, and through the DA agent that spent all those years after me and ends up later on, you know, I, and after he arrested me, the guy was a Christian and turned out to be a really good guy, you know? And uh, as a matter of fact, he helped me study in prison. He helped me, he sent, uh, helped me to get books when I couldn't get him in. Yeah. But I was getting another bachelor. So through him and through somebody that we're really, really close to, uh, to his brother, uh, they came to the United States, DA brought him in and, uh, to, to work out a deal. And all that Pablo wanted was nothing for himself. He just wanted his family to come to the United States, be protected and with $10 million. And he would turn in everything else and everybody and everything. And the truth of the matter was sad because at that moment, I think it could have put a real dent. I mean, you and I know the one does a joke, kill the Pablos you want, kill the, you know, chapels you want, kill whoever the hell you want. You know, it, this is never going to stop. You know, there's a lot of reasons why it's never going to stop. And, there, and, and, and there's things that can be done, but I think it's all political. I think it's just a big money machine. And, uh, <clears throat> but I do think that it would have put a big dent in drug trafficking from Colombia for at least a year or two before they recuperated because he was going to turn in every airstrip and stuff like that, you know? So, so it's sad when he realized that that was his last shot and, uh, you know, they got deported from uh, they didn't work a lot in Germany or anywhere else. And, uh, he knew that they were going to kill his family. So that day he stayed on the phone over and over and over again. Now, the theory that the son had that he shot himself, I mean, I don't know. What I do know is that whatever he did that day, to he knew that if he stayed on the phone longer than two minutes and 55 seconds, they're gonna trace him, right? Because, you know, the United States was out there with all kinds of equipment. You know, Colombia didn't have this type of resources. And uh, he knew that we would get him. And, uh, and that day he just decided, you know, 
uh, is either me or them. And he decided that he was going to die. And, and he was going to die the way he said he was always going to die. He told me numerous times that I met with him year for a year, I'm never going to be brought to the United States walking. I'm going to come horizontally. And he lived up to his word, man. That's for sure. You know? Yeah, but, I, I agree with you 100%. The, the Castaño brothers had said that they were, if they captured him alive, they were going to have his arms and legs surgically removed and they were going to throw the stump on the streets of Medellin and that would guarantee their legend. So he knew if they got a, got a hold of him, what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, he I, actually... I think more than the Castaño brothers, he feared coming to the United States and being thrown in a, in a cell in a Colorado. You know, <clears throat> he's just not going to do that work that happened. Yeah, that was the biggest thing, wasn't it? Extradition. Yeah, extradition was the biggest thing. But you know, the thing about it is, and I read in a lot of books and stuff like that, people, you know, of course, the articles and all that makes, well, first and foremost, you know, I don't know if you heard some of my tape, I started, I came out first than anybody else to say there was no Medellin drug cartel. That, that was yeah. all bullshit, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't know if recently you know that one of your show brothers, which I never even met him or even been ever in contact with him. I just recently found another interview he gave where he said exactly the same thing that I was saying, you know. And that was a fabrication by the Americans. Yeah. They knew, they knew that if they bunch everybody together on the one name, it's easy, right? You create a common enemy, well, what Fidel did in Cuba. He created one common enemy, the U.S. Yeah. So then it's easy to hate one enemy. It's difficult to hate 10 enemies, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so drug cartel like we know today, uh, Sinaloa and all that, that didn't exist back then. And, and honestly, uh, Sean, there were people much, much more powerful and richer than Pablo. Now, what Pablo was above anybody else, the most ruthless, and the most assassin of all. He just didn't give a shit about any human life, you know? And, uh, and a bully to a certain extent. So, but a lot of the people that were very, very rich and powerful, nobody even knows about, yeah. you know? And, uh, and that's, that's the thing that, that really, I think, I mean, I work, I work with him and I work with Gacha a lot. I work with another guy that he killed, uh, Frank Jimenez. Very people know about him. Uh, <clears throat> Frankie Mennon was very, very wealthy, but stupid in a party. He made a joke. Pablo's got all the fame, but I got all the money. And he did, man. And he had the best organization because one of the things that, that made me successful was, <clears throat> I, and, you know, one of the things that Pablo hated, he was greedy, right? So he wanted it all for himself. So if he knew that you were out there and you were bringing in all these loads and, and he had nothing to do with it, he'll try to steal your route. Well, one of the things that made me successful, which is a, a thing that I've had all my life, and one of the things that I just wrote a, a journal, you know, about mindset. What, what, you know, how do I look at the world? So different than a lot of people. Of course, you know, your mindset is informed by all the life experiences you've had. So no one can think like Sean Otterwood. Unless they've been through Sean Otwood's life experience, you know? Well, same as me. And uh, one of the things, I, so I wrote a 12-week, 12-week, how to get a mindset that, you know, survive prison, survive tortures, survive 10 years in jail, come out, get a PhD, uh, come back, dead broke, and start a company, build into a multi-million dollar international, international company. 
And, and, and I look back throughout my life, and, uh, and I call it a cartel because just for what, a lack of a better word. But in the first group that I was involved with in 76, which was bringing in the most amount of cocaine that, that was coming to the United States, period. One thing that I always did is I always believed in a win-win, right? So, for example, what I did, so let's say we were, we were bringing in 600 to 800 kilos in 77. Now, do the math. Most of it was going to California. We're selling in California. We started selling at 72, then went down to 65 when we're selling a lot. And then 10% came to uh, Miami. If you do that, we're doing 50, 75 million dollars. So now I got people that in 1976, I'm paying $10,000 a week, right? And they're doing everything. They're taking all the risk. And it's a lot of money in 76 when the average worker makes 100 bucks a week. But if you're making... $10,000 a week is a lot of money, but your boss is making a million and you're collecting it. Sooner or later, human greed is going to say, hey, bullshit. I want a piece of that. So like I always say, every employee is going to have a bonus. They're either going to take it or you're going to give it to them. So I did is after every load, I went ahead and I had a little, what we would call profit sharing. And it wasn't much, but they would get an extra 20 grand. And it just made them feel that I care. They knew that we're paying half a million dollars in retainer to the best attorneys in the country in case anything ever happened. They knew that uh, we would buy the family, the wife a house, set up a fund for the kids to go to college and, uh, and give the wife $3,000 a month back in 1976 is 20,000 today. Why would they ever testify against me, right? Never. So by God's grace, we never had anyone go so when I started uh, with, the, with Manuel Garcés, and we, it was the first group, I mean, actually, before, before us, but he wasn't bringing in large amount. I don't know if you heard of a guy named Pablo Correa, but yeah. he was actually probably the biggest one ever. Well, in that time, but he was an individual, right? So he had his own organization. Where Manuel was a genius was that he started bringing in people. So if we bring a load, let's say we're bringing in 500 kilos, and we'll say, okay, we're going to keep 200 for us. And then we'll divide the other 300, give Gacha 100, give Pablo 100, and give somebody else 100. So that way, everybody had a piece, you know, and everybody brought in. I'm going to tell you this. Uh, Frank Jimenez, or they call him a Negro, he had the best organization ever. As a matter of fact, I thought we were good, and I learned a lot about, you know, delivering. Because remember, we're delivering 500 kilos. At the beginning, Cocaine was not even a DA radar, right? It was all for the rich and famous. And, you know, I mean, think about it. Uh, then Sigmund Freud said that he wrote 80% of all his theories under the influence of cocaine. <laughs> and at that time, also, remember, Merck, Shark, and Doan used to sell pharmaceutical cocaine for $2,000, right? An ounce that was being bought by dentists, you know? So cocaine was not in the right. But later on, when Pablo came into the picture, uh, when I got out of prison, he, uh, this guy, uh, Frank, was just so well organized in the way that, because we're delivering all this under, literally under the police radar, right? They're watching us. So we're very, very meticulous about that. But it was happy that so many people say, well, why don't a lot of people know about a lot of people? I said, well, common sense tells you, number one, if you got a guy like Paul is willing to take all the, uh, all the credit, 
right? And all the reputation, well, shoot, let them make, make them his number one focus. Everybody kept on going, even with the, those peppers, you know? And, uh, and I say, I guess is when it boils down to, uh, I said there's two factors that I saw that brought everybody that came down, and that was, you know, greed and pride. And that was the biggest thing, man. You know, Pablo killed that guy because the guy made a comment that he had more money than him. <laughs> I mean, bullshit, man. As much money as you're making. And then another thing is, all the billions of dollars that, this, that the Americans claim that people were making, it was, that's ridiculous. Because, yeah, we made a lot of money, but, man, the expenses were horrific. I mean, horrific. I mean, $500,000 to a million dollars in payoffs a month. You know, I mean, think about it. from everywhere that an airplane comes to the United States, you got all those countries, you're paying all those radars, you're paying police here, police there, you're paying everybody you can afford to pay off. So the expenses were, were enormous. So that's, that's the thing. But, you know, like when I get arrested in 1979 and I walk into that, into uh, the courthouse in Miami for arraignment and they're asking for a $5 million bail. Man, Sean, I was 23 years old, man. I didn't have a freaking traffic ticket. I, I had never done anything wrong. I worked four years for the Federal Reserve Bank. They put me to the University of Miami. I was not, <clears throat> you know, I wasn't an assassin. I looked like a nerd. I literally didn't know that my attorney had turned on me. I wouldn't find out for six, seven years. And he's the one that told him. And, uh, but, I mean, they, they ended up giving me $2 million bill, which I was about to post it when my attorney said, don't you dare because it's just all they're going to do is take the money. And give you, but the thing about it was that I could legitimately claim. I just did a a big series that's going to come out. The people that did Cocaine Cowboys is going to come out this fall, six episodes, and they asked me a question that was really really interesting that nobody has ever ever asked me. How was it so easy for you to walk away, and others, like Pablo, like El Chapo, like specifically this series is about two kids. And uh, one of them is the guy that I brought into the game. And he was my parents and his parents were best friends. We literally grew up together. And, uh, and they said, why couldn't he walk away? Tons of passports, <laughs> tons of jets. I mean, why do we have passports for? So in case we need to run, we could run easily, right? But nobody runs. Nobody runs. And, and, and he just came to me. I said, you know, and, and it came to me because I know a lot of baseball players and I'll, I'll, I'll tie them together. And I said to myself, here's the thing. Number one, because I never considered myself a drug dealer. You know, I was a businessman. In 1975, I was exporting yams and ginger to London from the Dominican Republic <laughs> at the age of 19. So I had a lot of legitimate businesses. I mean, when I got, before I got arrested, those three years I was in, in, in the game, my parents had no idea because I traveled all over the world. And uh, I said, I was a businessman. I went to my office at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I left at 6. They've never had a white tap on me. They've never had a compromising picture on me or anyone compromising coming into my office. And I didn't flaunt my wealth in their face, right? So... It was easy for me when I come out in 1984 and I go back to the, on the business for till 
beginning of 87. And I realized that the world had changed. Now all of a sudden you got to get carry guns. Now I need to go around with bodyguards. I had to pay $30,000 for attack dogs. You know, all of that crap. And things that I, I detail in my book. I realized I, I don't need any of this. I didn't even need to get involved when I came out of prison. I was a multimillionaire. I lived in a multi-million dollar ranch. I was, I had a horse operation where I was making a million dollars just breeding my horse at a hospital at the ranch. And uh, so it was easy for me to quit, right? It's like if you're in a business and you produce blue widgets and you realize blue widgets don't sell. <clears throat> well, and what does an entrepreneur do? He just stops selling blue widgets, right? He makes red ones or whatever. Whereas this guy's identity, so again, so I'm not, I don't consider myself a drug dealer, I'm a businessman and one of the businesses I run is a cocaine empire. Whereas these guys are, their entire identity is a drug dealer and they can leave that identity. Think about all the extradition, all the countries without extradition that any of them could have been there in three hours time, four hours, right? Get their jets, they know how to fly, boom. But they can't, they can't because at the end of the day, I think a lot of it, has, the biggest payoff is getting caught, you know? So for me, I was able to leave easily. And uh, like, <clears throat> so like when these people were trying to, to get me to do this series for the last three years, I mean, like, how did they find me? They find me because, I mean, when, when they, they find out my name, they're like, well, nobody ever heard of George Valdez. Well, the prosecutor said, yeah, because he didn't run this like the drug dealers. He didn't go to the clubs and threw away money and he did not run power boats. And, you know, he was not a high school dropout like most of them. He had a college degree and he was a businessman. He ran it like a business. And that's, and I, and I mean that about both players because how many athletes you see that, in, that all of a sudden their, their career starts going down and instead of quitting in the height of their career, what they do, they go with another team, eventually get benched. And I mean, hey, you know how it is in America. I tell them, you, only, you only remember for your last dance, right? And that, was, and that was the thing about me. And then I wrote that book in 98. I didn't want to write the book. I, I tell people at that time, when I wrote Coming Clean, there was the big snitch wasn't around, Google, you know? <laughs> so you couldn't find out. So my, my whole thing is, I just finished my PhD. I'm one of five Hispanics in the country. I got named one of the Hispanic doctoral students in America five year, two years in a row by the Pew Foundation. And I'm like, okay, so I'm just gonna go off and teach somewhere. No one's gonna know who I was. Uh, I'm gonna have a bunch of pretty girls begging me for a grade and that's gonna be a wonderful life for me. But then I had a wife that kept threatening me that if I did not uh, do this or do that or do that, she would tell my kids. And then one day I said, you know, I'm tired. I'm tired of living with that hidden secret. You know, you're always trying to find, you're always wondering who's gonna find out, right? Who's going to know somebody that knew you? And all of a sudden, this facade that you live in, it's boom, it's gone. So I said, I said, shit, screw it. I'm going to write it. I'm going to tell my kids who I was. And then I uh, <clears throat> wrote the book. They told me I would do five interviews, three or four book signings. 
I ended up doing 350 interviews. So I was like all over the place. Well, I didn't want to live off my story. I got a huge advance from Random House. You written books. I got $150 advance, and all I wrote was a sheet of paper what my story was about. And I was offered millions, a million by another big publishing house. But my agent told me, look, if you, if you go with that other publishing house, they're going to ask you to write the book, the, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. So what you need to do is identify who your audience is. So that's what he says to me. Who are you writing this book for? I said, well, number one, I'm writing it for my kids. You know, I, I want them to know who their father was. I don't want 30 years down the road someone saying, hey, do you know your father was a drug dealer, was in jail for 10 years? I mean, when would we have imagined that there would be a Google that you can just sit down and find out everything about every human being, right? <laughs> it was a better world back then. So I said, He's, so he says to me, if you write the book, your children are going to say, wow, what a powerful man my father was. If you write the Random House <clears throat> book that they want you to write, they will find out what a great God you served that changed your father. So I decided that. And I went with that. And I donated every penny of it. I never kept $1. It was a great experience because Random House, you can imagine a book like that, all their lawyers, it took them a year and a half to verify everything you can ever imagine. I mean, they talked to every human being that ever existed, starting with every government agent that followed me, every prosecutor, every judge, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> I gave that away because I didn't want to live with that story and I just wanted to teach. So, but I wrote the book and I'm like, when I, well, when I get my salary, I had a, like a big salary because, you know, there's not that many Hispanics, five in the whole country when I graduated with a PhD. And, uh, I looked at myself, I'm like, shit, how am I going to put six kids to college with this? Unless they decide to go where I teach. So, and then my dad died and I wanted to be a full-time dad. I'm, I was missing him tremendously. My father was my hero, my best friend. You know, he left Cuba, multimillionaire, and came to the United States to clean toilets at a department store. Never complained, never took government help. He said, if you take money from the government because you're poor, and if you're, and, and if you're poor, you're going to stay poor all your life. He said, you work your work. He said, we're not poor. We don't have money. So you work your way out of our present financial situation by getting up early in the morning and working harder. Now, I was 10 years old, weighed 75 pounds. I've been doing that. I've been getting up at 4.30 ever since. I can't go back. I can't sleep any, no matter how bad I want to. So <clears throat> I went, uh, I'm, I, I'm thinking like, man, why am I missing my dad so much? He died a month before my wedding. And I'm um, like, I realized he couldn't give me nothing because he didn't have nothing to give, but he gave me his presence and he was there in my life. And uh, I decided to abandon my career and move to Georgia so I can be a full-time dad to three little kids. And I started a company from scratch in the basement of our house and we built it in, in 10 years. I built it into a multi-million dollar company. And then, uh, so I, I was writing the book at the same time that I was building the company. And then I walked away from, writing the book. I mean, from that world, I didn't want to, I don't want to be speaking. I was doing some of the biggest events in America. I didn't want to do any of that. And uh, just taking my time to my company because at the same time, I had, I, it was a different world, right? It's sad now when kids find out in school who my kids' parents are, father was, they're heroes. But back then, people wouldn't let uh, their kids play with my kids, you know? No matter that I become a Christian, no matter that I walked away on my own in 1987. 
It wasn't that I got caught in there. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Bullshit. No, I walked away from making a million dollars for doing nothing. I hadn't seen cocaine in six years. And uh, <clears throat> I started that company. And Robin Peter paid Paul. But, you know, we worked hard, hard. And then uh, in 2010, I sold it. And when I sold it, I, uh, I decided I wanted to move to Mexico because, you know, you know what they call people that are bilingual, right? Speak two language, monolingual, Americans. They only speak one language. And I wanted my kids to learn a different culture. My wife and I were both grow up poor. And uh, sadly, my children were not living poor. You know, we built a company. We had a private jet. We had yachts. And uh, it was in a real world that I wanted my kids to know. I wanted them to see people that were missing meals every day and still had faith and uh, different culture. <clears throat> I guess it was easy to be a Christian in a white suburbia America, but step out and then see, you know, when you pray, you pray, and then nothing happens in your life. Do you still believe in God or not? So last year, when my daughter and I was getting ready to go to college this year, I said, okay, my youngest daughter, I'm like, let's give this a shot again. And let's try to make a difference in the world. <clears throat> I've been sending books to prison for a long, long time, my book. And uh, this year alone, we've sent uh, over 17,500 books. Well done, man. Thanks. And they said that 10 inmates, you, you've been in prison, you know, <laughs> when a book comes in, you know how hard it is to get a book there. Everybody's it's like nagging. gold, mail and, yeah. and books are gold. Yeah, exactly. Especially if it's a gangster book, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, uh, I, I did a short version of the book because I wanted to also take out some of the tempting scenes in the book. So I call it Narco Mindset Freedom Edition, which I give it to people when they join my website uh, and they sign into our community. It sends them a free PDF. And, uh, and they said 10 people. So just this year alone, uh, maybe 108,000 people read the book. And, and, and you know, and, and my mission, Sean, is not to convert anyone. I tell people, you know, my, in life, I'm not about, I don't give a damn what anybody is. I mean, I respect everybody. I don't respect people because of their religion or, sorry about that, or any of that. I respect people when they're people of integrity and honor, you know? And when you, when you tell the truth, you're not afraid to tell it, you know? So I thought, I don't care if, if they're Buddhist. If, if they worship plants or rocks or whatever, I don't care if they're straight, gay, trisexual, quintessential, whatever, they, whatever anybody is. All I tell people is, <clears throat> look, all I'm going to tell you is a simple story. How the love of a Jewish carpenter transformed my heart. That's it. That's it. If the shoe fits, wear it. If not, buy another pair of shoes, you know? And it's, it's my story. It's not a story. I'm not like those TV preachers. Oh, accept Jesus and, and you'll become rich or accept Jesus and, you know, you're going to go to heaven or none of that, you know. And everything I've done with my foundation, never, never, ever asked for a dollar, never raised a dollar from anybody. Uh, we built the, the first and only Catholic chapel inside any U.S. prison at Angola in Louisiana, you know, deadliest prison in the history of America. And uh, we did that with our own money not asking people to donate and me and another partner uh, did it. And, you know, I tell people, look, what we do, we do it with 
with our own funds. I don't believe in, you know, begging for money and raising money. You know, I, I live a nice, comfortable life. Nothing compared, I live like a pauper compared to how I used to live, but I'm happy, man. I'm 64. I never thought I'd get past 24. So it's been a good ride. And here I am with you, meeting you. Well, congratulations on turning your life around and getting your priorities so worthy. And I have so many questions then. Watch the Vlad TV interview with you. Now, you were bringing in up to 700 kilos at a time of Coke in the 1970s before Escobar was a big player. This Escobar back then was in the, the, under the contraband kingpin in the Marlboro yeah. Wars. But my question for you is, the dominant, most famous person as, as terms of the media uh, um, in Florida, especially for the Dadeland, the shootout, is Griselda Blanco. Did you have any dealings with her? Not at all. Not at all. Because, and she was very, very powerful. But again, a, a lot of her notoriety came because she killed her husband and she killed everybody. I mean, the bottom line is, think about this. She goes to jail for what, 22 years she did? Comes out, goes to Colombia. By then, so by then, <clears throat> most of the people she dealt with were all dead, right? And what happens? She gets killed immediately, which tells you that her, uh, the damage she caused went beyond just the <clears throat> people forget that people have families, you know, and that, and that what you do is going to come around you. And I didn't because when I started, and, and I think that she started to get, again, she started to get a lot of notoriety in 1980, if my numbers are correct. <clears throat> I went to prison in uh, April of 79. When I started, my God, our first stash house was right across the police station in Miami. And I'm fighting half of the time with the freaking cops to move the cars out of my driveway so I can get the Coke. <clears throat> in a garbage bag, in a 55-gallon garbage bag, in, in a convertible to take it somewhere. <clears throat> so that's how they were after the marijuana really bad, you know? So they had no idea that cocaine came into the picture. So, I uh, know I did not know her. Uh, she was very, very, very powerful. Uh, you know, she, I don't know if she brought in as much as people alleged that she brought in. But she did kill as many people as people say that she killed and probably more. And that's, you know, that's what the other days, what ends up giving you a lot of, uh, uh, you know, fame. So, no, I did not know her. Uh, uh, Pablo, uh, he was working, you know, it was interesting because I don't know if it was in your book or somewhere else. The first, the king of Cantron was a guy named Fabio Restrepo, right? So, Recently, I talked to Manuel, which, by the way, he's 93 years old and looks better than me, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, the re and lived in the same house all his life. And, uh, and the reason is because he did not ever participate in these murders or anything like that. But we were at, uh, at there was a very famous cockfight in Medellin, uh, of cockfight owned by uh, Julio Orozco. Uh, she was like one of the first uh, pioneers. Again, bringing 10, 20 kilos. And, uh, and we were with him that night. And uh, my memory was he left that night to go to Bogota 
Because we spent the whole night talking to him. And in the middle of the night, in a storm, he crashed. And his plane and killed himself. But there's all kinds of versions out there, you know. Uh, who knows which the that's again because we're talking about now, Sean. Man, I'm 64. I was 76. I was 20. So that's 40, 44 years ago. So, and conveniently, I've forgotten a lot of stuff. <laughs> so we communicated by email, and you revealed that you've read my War on Drugs series of books. And when I tell people that the black market in drugs created by drug laws gets bigger every year, it's corrupted governments all over the world. They arrest the small people to show they are fighting the war on drugs while running or taking payments from the traffickers behind the scenes because there's just so much money and the whole war on drugs is a charade. Now, if anyone can verify that, because you've dealt with top government officials across the world. General Noriega would be a good example. Sure. How does it work at that level with those governments? And here's the thing. That's how I came across your books because I started, I wanted to talk about the war on drugs, right? Because I worked a lot with youth and I say, cocaine is less than 15% of the drug overdose in America. Less than 15%. Uh, Senator Cotton recently, Remember when the American, those American family was killed in Juarez and uh, by the drug lords? Well, it was very suspicious to me, right? Because knowing the inner circle and the inner world, drug dealers killed drug dealers. Now, there's, there's bystanders around innocently, but drug dealers just don't go target a family for the hell of targeting a family, right? So that's number one. So there was a lot of things going on, but what pissed me off was when Senator Cotton made the comment that why don't we just send in the special forces and just wipe them out? <laughs> and I laughed. And as a result of that statement, thank God I started reading all your books because I found you and, uh, and I'll get to that. And I, I wrote to him, I said, why, are you, why don't you quit lying to the world? So let me ask you this, Senator. Are you going to then, how many towns in Mexico are you going to invade to kill drug dealers? You're not going to eliminate the cartel. Then are you going to go to Mexico? Then are you going to go, I mean, Colombia? Are you going to go to Peru? Are you going to go to Guatemala? Are you going to go all over Latin America with your Marines, wiping them out, right? All these cartels, by the time you get, just in Mexico, by the time you, you kill one in Sinaloa and go to another town, there's a new boss in Sinaloa already. So, and then I ended up by saying, and then logically I would assume that you're going to go to Big Pharma and lock their ass up because there's 65% of the reason of all this drug overdose. So I started to do some research and then I found your books and I found your writings about the war on drugs. And I'm like, you know, this is the first person that I really agree a hundred percent on what he's saying about this. It's a big money deal. We spend billions, you know, it's like freaking insanity, man. What is insanity? Do the same shit over and over again and expect different results. Well, that's what we have with this war on drugs. Listen, when it costs a billion dollars, let, let, I'll give you a, a little example. Do you think, so everybody knows somebody, right? Everybody has a friend, a close friend, that has a close friend. And somewhere on the lineage is someone in position of power in law enforcement. Now, by no means am I saying that all law enforcement is crooked, nothing like that, right? We know that, we know that there's a lot of good people 
that raise their likelihood they believe what they're doing. But take Border Patrol in the United States. So a lot of those guys live right next to the border community or in the border community, right? The agents. So you mean to tell me that if somebody comes up, Sean uh, Atwood is a Border Patrol agent, and I come up to him and say, hey, Sean, uh, you're making barely surviving because <laughs> they don't make crap, and I'm going to give you $20,000, and this is all you got to do. I don't want you to tell me anything. All I want you to do is a certain truck is going to come by and just don't look at it too hard. You mean to tell me they're not going to take it? Money corrupts without a doubt, without a doubt. And I, I saw it. I saw it firsthand. Uh, local law enforcement. I mean, we're buying sheriffs that were receiving the airplane, putting the money in their trunk and escorting it to Miami. <laughs> when, when we knew, you remember, I don't know if you, remember, if you covered, there was a time when the balloons were going on. United States had this radar system of balloons. Well, the balloons are, you know, like two eccentric circles, right? But they can't touch each other. <clears throat> so they, they, between there is what we called uh, the alleyway, right? Well, the way to control the alleyway, you just shift the balloons, right? So then the alleyway shifted. Well, I don't know, less than 10 minutes after it was shifted, we knew the new coordinates. So, yeah, you buy a lot of people. Uh, why? I mean, common sense. This is here's what gets me, and this is what I'm talking about. <clears throat> you and I bring up all this notion about reality. First and foremost, the billions of dollars they're spending is my tax dollar. <laughs> you know, number one. So you mean we can't? We have shitty healthcare in America, but we can spend billions of dollars on some bullshit that over 20 years has. If, if any company does something for two years, it doesn't work, they go bankrupt. But the American government doesn't because idiots elect idiots, right? No politician gets out there, Sean, and says, I am your senator, I am your congressman, right? So <clears throat> I tell people the most important thing we need to do is vote and get their, vote their ass out of there when we realize some of these people have been there for years. And what has changed? Absolutely nothing. Nothing has changed. And we're spending billions of dollars that Let's go back <clears throat> to the beginning of the war on drugs, which you, you detail very well in your book. Well, I was in the midst of that at that time. So Nixon, the first one to declare war on drugs, right? Nixon begins to go after the, uh, to address the consumption in New York City because of all the heroin coming in, right? So he created those methadone clinics, and there's a great book called The Fix, and it's, uh, it's, it's written from the eyes of uh, law enforcement and of uh, uh, a clinic uh, a therapist. And, uh, and he goes after to help these addicts and ends up making a big impact. But something happens and it shifts. And then, of course, Reagan comes in, the cowboy, and he says, I'm going after the suppliers. You know what we said when he said that? Thank God, man. Thank God, because you're never going to catch us. Just leave our demand alone. <laughs> Don't mess with our demand. So America consumes, what, 85% of the world's production of narcotics? Why? You know, when, at the beginning, when, remember uh, right before Paula when the United States was attacking uh, the Colombian president for not doing enough? And I forgot the name of that Colombian president by the time he said, hey, why are you doing not enough to stop the demand? 
we don't have a we don't have a consumption problem in Colombia. You know, nobody was using drugs in Colombia during that time. So it was real. And so therefore it's real simple economics, right? Supply and demand. As long as you have a supply uh, demand, there will be a supply. Kill all the Pablo Escobars in the world, lock everybody up, there will always be someone there and someone bigger. And the problem is complex. You know, and I tell people I I believe I, I have a solution, but not that we're gonna eradicate, but you know, one thing it begins with uh, in, you know, international companies going and exploiting Colombia in those countries, you know? So we, when we started, banana was a big deal in, in Colombia, right? In a place where we were out of turbo, where we were bringing a lot of the airplanes out of. And uh, we went to the, because remember, Colombia did not grow any cocaine. In the, at the beginning, Colombia did not grow uh, any cocaine or produced any, nothing. All that Colombia did was begin to crystallize, right? It was coming from uh, uh, Bolivia, Peru. So then you go to this farm and say, how much are you making growing bananas? So the big banana companies that everybody consumes, is like, well, and I'm just using round numbers, just for example, $10 uh, an acre or $10 hectare. And they're like, we're like, really? And they say, yeah. And that after about seven months of the production, they said they've had enough. They don't need no more. And then, we don't even have roads to get it to Medellin. So we just got to throw it away and we go two months hungry. So now here comes a big bad drug dealer and say, hey, bullshit, $10, we'll pay you $1,000. Now you're going to uh, grow cocaine or you're going to grow opium, whatever. I mean, is he an immoral person? Just survival, right? So as long as we continue to exploit the, the multinationals, those countries, there's always going to be somebody, right? Same problem we have in America today. If we can make every white person love every person of color, and I'm considered a person of color, it means shit if we don't do criminal justice reform because the laws are set up to lock every person of color. So all of a sudden they like us now instead of liking us, instead of hating us on the street, they're going to like us while we're in prison. But like you said, it's a big mafia. Is a big mafia and it's fuel private prisons in America. You know about that. You know, what they tell a uh, legislator, pass harder laws. You know, when I, I tell people, it's great to protest, we're protesting, but I'm at odd. Why the hell didn't we start protesting in 86 when the minimum mandatory laws came into existence? And they knew that those laws were set up to go after the minority community, especially the African-American. When, when one gram of crack gives you five years, I mean, <clears throat> five grams of crack gives you five years and 100 grams of powder gives you five years, well, anyone ever figure out that it takes the same amount of uh, grams of uh, powder to make crack? <laughs> so why? Because that's where, who consumes that? It's cheap, you know, and, and it's easily accessible, and it destroys them. So the corruption is enormous. I mean, listen, back then, we were like, we're not like the cartels today, man. We did not have the power or the influence these people have. I guarantee you, if, they, if it's true that they're saying that El Chapo had distribution in every continent of the world, I can promise you, man. I mean, look, we were nobodies and we elected the president of Costa Rica, you know, a million dollars in 1978. Now, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to do whatever we tell him to do. We're going to set up labs there. We're going to set up 
uh, stopping point. We're going to do a, a lot of stuff. But that's what happens is corruption. Stop. You know, make these people term limits. Congressman, four years. Senator, six. Get the hell out. Go back to your job. And most of these people never ran a business in their life, and now they want to run a country? Come on, man. That's why look, look at the problem we have in America. Look at this fear with this virus. It's all crazy. Well, what's sad is the hypocrisy, because you just mentioned it's the politicians, the judges, the legislators locking people up for low-level drug offenses. Well, from what you said earlier, the big players can buy these guys off. You were able to buy them off at the state level. Oh, Sean, listen. In 1979, when I was in prison, between African-Americans and Latinos, I think we were less than 30% of the prison population. Now, African-American and white are equal, but if you tie African-American and Latinos, we're almost 80% of the prison population. So you get all these kids that have never seen $5,000 in their lives, and you send them to prison for life, three-time offender. Holy shit, you talk about the biggest joke? You get busted at 14 stealing a bike, and at 16 in school you get caught with a joint, and all of a sudden now you're trying to sell a pound of marijuana, and you're going to get a life sentence? Whereas the rich or the, or the big cartel bosses, I mean, short of a guy like El Chapo, because there's just so much political, I don't give a shit what he does. He's never going to get out. But most of them, they go to jail, and what do they do? They buy the sentence down. <clears throat> Number one, they can forfeit a lot of money. That In 1990, when I got arrested, I, was, I walked away for four years. Four years. Never done nothing in four years. I get arrested. I'm in shock. Why the hell are they arresting me? So they tie me in to an organization that everybody had been convicted already. 160 some odd people. And the, the head guy got life sentence. Everybody was convicted. <clears throat> I was the last guy. They come and get me on a bullshit made up charge. And by a guy, by a pilot that said that he went to Miami and I, and I picked up his boss early in the morning, Dickie Lynn, which was a friend of mine, and he's doing live now. A great guy, stand-up guy. And, uh, and then Dickie Lynn comes back later at night with somebody else, and he's got I don't know how many millions, and he tells him, hey, George Valdez gave me that money. I mean, first of all, if you know anything, it's no freaking head guy tells his pilot shit because they know that the number one weakest link in any drug organization is the pilots, right? The prima donna, I will guarantee you, nine out of ten will always testify. Easy. <clears throat> you were in prison. You know, you've seen that over and over again. <clears throat> so, but what they wanted, they wanted my money. So my attorney tells me I can walk because that night before, the guy that was going to testify against me kills himself. While he's a government witness, he's smuggling drugs in a DA airplane. So, and he, and he kills himself in the fog. So, my attorney told me, hey, you're going to walk. But I had become a Christian three months earlier. And honestly, I was just tired of fighting them. Sean, I've been fighting them since I was 20 years old. And I never forget a very decent agent that picked me up when I came from Panama. You know, <clears throat> I mean, I, I remember those words like the Bible. He says to me, he said, you know, I read your file. You're the same age as my son. My son would have never been able to achieve what you have achieved. He don't have the intellect capacity that you do, and you ruin your life. And then he says to me, very respectful, son, you're about to go in front of a judge. 
And that judge is going to read the following sentence. United States versus George Valdez. He said, now pause and think about this for a minute. That's 250 million people against you. He said, you know what happens every Friday and when you're getting away with doing whatever you're doing? I get a check and I go home. You know what happened that Friday when I bust you? You ain't never going home. I can afford to let you get away a million times. You can't afford to get caught once. That's pretty bad odds. I never forget those words. I should have freaking listened to them, you know. But <clears throat> they wanted my money. They knew how much money. They couldn't take it that I was, you know, I had walked away on my own, and they were never able to catch me. And, uh, and I did. I forfeited, you know, according to them, probably 5 to $10 million, how they value thing, how they value thing when it comes to a forfeiture versus how they value thing when they want to put you in jail, right? And according to me, 40 to $60 million, everything I had. And I went away, uh, no promises of anything. The only thing that we asked is, listen, give me, sentence me under the statutes when I committed my crime. I'm pleading guilty, admitting to continuing to deal when I was under parole. So my first sentence, 15 years. I do five plus because there was some county time that didn't give me time for. So I do five. You know, you, you do one third automatic in the old law versus now, same law, three life sentences. So you do one third, <clears throat> and I did. So you got 10 years of parole. So I'm admitting to dealing drugs while on the parole. So technically, the most they should do is violate my parole, right? So we said, look, we'll voluntarily forfeit all the money because they couldn't take any of it because statute of limitation run out. I'll volunteer all the money in exchange, not in exchange for anything, just that you will go in front of the judge and proffer that number one, I cooperated by forfeiting money. And number two, that I walked away on my own four years earlier. So that's how it all began. But you take this kid, what does he got to offer? Not a damn thing. No more. First and foremost, 79, I had a million dollars with the lawyers. I mean, Alan Dershowitz, who, you know, has been in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. You know, he did my brief on, on my bail because my first bail... No drug dealer gets bail now, thanks to me. Because my first bail, we argued all the way to Supreme Court that you have a constitutional right to bail unless you're a menace to the community. And, and back then, it was you kill somebody, right? Or you're violent. But I'm a drug dealer. <clears throat> drug dealers back then were not violent, man. They were just business people. But this judge said, the level of drugs that you are involved with makes you a menace to your community, your community being the entire United States. We fought it, argued it all the way to Supreme Court, <clears throat> and they reaffirmed the decision, and, and then I kept the bail. So nobody gets bail now. Before, in 1979, who the hell ever got $2 million bail? I think in 1979, if they had Osama bin Laden, he probably could have got maybe $500,000 bail, <laughs> you know, because it was a different world. You mentioned Panama there, George. Are you okay to tell us the story of how you got incarcerated and tortured in Panama? Yeah. So what happened is I had never gotten on an airplane. You know, as I detailed the book, Coming Clean, I never got on an airplane, but when we, and we were dealing with Bolivia. So a friend of mine <clears throat> that worked for me comes and said, listen, the government of Bolivia wants to deal with you. And they got a great offer. Let's go meet with them. And I go and I meet in Bolivia. And their offer was, for number one, we're paying eighteen to twenty thousand dollars a kilo in Colombia, so they're offering to give us 
the kilo for 10,000. And if for every kilo I bought, they give me one on credit. <clears throat> so I go and uh, to prepare, to show the pilots the airstrip where they're going to land on the way back from Bolivia. And then we're going to go and, and then we're going to go to Nicaragua where I had connections with uh, Somoza in Corn Island. So I had a meeting with Somoza because we were going to start bringing in loads through his, uh, Corn Island was a big uh, seafood producer and owned by the government. So they would send to the United States big refrigerated containers, you know, and to us it was perfect. You know, we'll just send the cocaine in there, all worked out with the government. So, but when, when I'm about to head to uh, Nicaragua, I get a call from my right-hand guy and he's like, hey, they betrayed you. Oh, the only thing they have here is the cocaine you paid for. So this 23-year-old fool is going to go out there and threaten people that have overthrown six freaking governments, right? But that's how crazy you get, man. <clears throat> so I go out there. We strain everything out. Then I come back. Then I can't get to Nicaragua on time for my meeting with Somoza. So there's just, I, I'm just going to get on the airplane with the drugs. Never been on the airplane with the drugs in my life. When I landed in Colombia, my godfather saw me on that airplane. He freaking had a cow. Because he's like, here you are. You handle everything in the U.S. for us. And you're going to freaking get arrested like a mule? I'm like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Nothing can happen to me. Look, nothing happened. Anyway, big argument on that. So I get on the airplane. I said, look, I'm just going to stay in Nicaragua. I'm going to have the meeting with Somoza. Then he's going to fly me to the Dominican Republic where I was reconciling with my ex-wife. And we're going to go to... We're going to Europe, to Germany. I just ordered a brand new uh, Mercedes convertible, and we're going to spend a month in, in uh, Europe. So <clears throat> when we take off, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing that happens is one alternator goes out. So back then, we would have a bladder inside the airplane, right? You know, big old Goodyear, think about it like a big old balloon. And uh, that's how we would get extra range. You fill that up with fuel because the more you carry, the less range an airplane has. So the way you add uh, range is you put these big bladders and then you can pump. And then they were made in a certain way that when the plane, the airplane came to, to wherever you, you were stationed, Miami or whatever, that bladder is removed and it doesn't look like, like nothing. Or no one would suspect that a Queen Air will go to Columbia because it doesn't have enough range. So we, we add all that. So they're like, should we turn around? I'm like, what the heck? We still got one alternator. If we turn around, you know, what the hell are we going to do in the jungle of Colombia? Let's just get to Nicaragua and we'll figure it out from there. But the other one went out shortly thereafter and we crash landed over the jungles of Panama. So again, I'm very familiar with the whole Latin American world. You can buy a president, you can buy whoever the hell you want to buy. Just depend, the price depends. So my big mistake was when, I, when we jumped, and literally, if you've seen the pictures in my book, Coming Clean, I mean, we literally dove like this. So it wasn't that someone could come and search because we had to jump out the door. So you have to be in a ladder to get up to the airplane. My biggest mistake was I should have, number one, first is listen to the head of the pilot, the guy that, that was in charge of all the transportation, when he said, blow the son of a bitch up. Get the flare gun and blow the airplane. We got diesel inside i mean we got gasoline inside the airplane 
and we got ether, we got cocaine. I mean, that thing would have gone up like a bomb, right? And I'm like, oh, shit, no, there's $7 million in there. I ain't going to blow this up. He said, George, you can make it up again. I said, look, it doesn't matter. There's nothing can happen to us. This is my world. And, uh, and of course, come the military, it was a little town, Chiriqui, outside, uh, literally about 20 miles from Costa Rica. So my thought is I'm going to make a phone call, and they'll send people to come pick up the cocaine, take it to Costa Rica. We go there, <clears throat> and then we'll figure out how to get it to Miami. So the guy comes, and I give him 200 bucks. Just to, I said, look, we're, we're trying to buy a, a farm. We flew over. We crash landed. And uh, I'm going to send someone to uh, come fix the airplane. There's no way to fix that thing. That thing was devastated. So they take us into, into the, uh, the guy says, okay. I said, I'm going to go to a hotel, and we'll come back tomorrow morning. And this was the second mistake. I gave him my passport. I said, can you stamp my passport like we came in legally, like we landed legally? Oh, yeah, no problem. <clears throat> so we leave. I should have at that time because I carried $100,000, $200,000 in a false compartment of a briefcase. I should have just given him $5,000 and tell them what was going on. Shoot, he would have taken that cocaine to his house, you know, for $5,000. <clears> he probably get paid $20 a month at that time. So we went. I made my calls. They were going to come pick us up. I said, look, I'm going to go to the police station, pick up our passport, pick us up here at noon. We'll go up to the airplane. You know, and we'll get the coke out because it was in suitcases, and then we'll and we're on our way. So I went to the police station. When I got there, I mean, it, I knew the shit hit the fan because I see those gringos, and I'm like, in this little bit of rural town, <laughs> one guy with a suit, and uh, so they separate us. Luckily, I had enough common sense to take two hundred dollars. I was going to give the guys a tip, and I put it in the gums of my, in my gums. You know, I said, maybe this will come in handy. So they bring us out. It was the head of the DEA for Panama. Uh, it was uh, the consul general and the head of the G2. So they bring us in there and they're like, take pictures with uh, all the cocaine in the front and all that stuff. And they take us to, uh, to the jail, the little local jail. So when I ask, well, can I call my attorney? And they're like, dude, you're in Panama. You're Napole Napoleonic law. We, we can keep you here for 20 years without telling anyone you're here. So we go to the jail, and I tell my guy, don't worry. Sooner or later, someone of power is going to come. Sure enough, the next day, <clears throat> the attorney general comes. When the attorney general comes, I looked at him and said, look, I don't want to waste your time of mine. How much money to get out? How much money to buy the cocaine? He looked at me and said, Noriega already sold the cocaine. See, because people don't realize that time Norega was working for the CIA. I think you highlight that in your book. And he was always work, also working for the cartels. That's why they got his ass. He was double dipping. I think he was, I don't know how much money I, he was getting. Someone told me back then he was getting fifty dollars to $100,000 a month from the DEA. Yeah, George H.W. Bush. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, he said, 250000 for you to leave. So, he said, let's come up with a story. And I came up with a story that you know, I, I, we were uh, sending guns to the Sandinistas. And I know what was in the suitcase. I thought it was guns. And uh, he said, just go. They're going to take you to Panama. I, so I, I give him a number and a code. Because I, we always have one person on standby with a code system to know that 
If anyone got arrested anywhere, all they need to do was call that one number. Forget about trying to get a hold of your attorney, whether the guy is at the office or not. Call that number. That person knows exactly what to do. He has access to a million dollars with him at all time. And there's certain codes. So I said, call this person, give him this code, and the money will be here tomorrow, the next day. And he does. And uh, so two days later, he comes and he says, uh, everything is in order. I got you tickets. You're going to go to uh, Costa Rica. They're going to take you to Panama City tomorrow. They're going to rough you up a little bit, but just stick to your story. I already signed the papers that you landed by accident, so we have no jurisdiction over you, and you're going to go home. And sure enough, the next morning they come, they got us. They took us to uh, Panama City, and uh, they sat us down in this conference room that was about, i say, seven meters wide along by maybe two to three meters wide. Nothing but four chairs up against the wall. So we're sitting there wondering what's going on, and all of a sudden they bring this Panamanian kid. Couldn't wait, 40 kilos, maybe 35 kilos, you know, small, and uh, handcuffed to his feet and naked into his hands, and they threw him in the floor right in front of us. And then they took a broomstick and stuck it up his anus, and literally blood just splattered all over the freaking place. But when that happened, the pilots, I mean, quickly, I mean, it didn't take him two minutes, man, and they're like, not only are <clears throat> we not taking arms, we knew it was drugs, and George Valdez is the biggest drug dealer in America. So they take us to a dungeon for the next 28 days. They just torture us day and night. They put electricity to our testicles. They beat us two, three times a day till we pass out. No food, no bathroom, you know, in a rat-infested cell. And uh, so my fear was, because it's amazing how the human mind works, right? Like the third or fourth day that I'm there, Sean, I have this vision after a beating. <laughs> and the vision is that I'm shaving and my son, who at that time would have been seven years old, but he was really six months old. But in my vision, he's about seven, eight years old, comes to me crying and saying, and I'm like, why are you crying, son? And he's like, because my friend said that my father is not a man. He's a rat. And I said, I'll die in this son of a bitch before anyone tells that to my kids. But my fear was not of anything but losing my mind. Because across from me, in another cell, there was a guy that had been there three months, and he just kept licking the bars up and down all day long with his tongue. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be in some freaking mental institution, you know, a burden to anyone. Kill me. I don't give a shit. So we came up with a plan that next time they came to beat us, before they got in the cell to beat us, we would threaten Noriega. And I told the guy, I said, look, before you come in here, I'm going to tell you something. You tell your boss to kill me. Because if you don't kill me, when I get out, I'm going to come get him. And I'm gonna, we're going to rape his wife right in front of him. I mean, we were nonviolent, man. But I'm like, this will definitely get me killed. And then we're going to kill him. And he knows we got the power. Because I knew he worked for the cartels. I knew that he worked uh, for, uh, that, you know, for different drug dealers in Colombia at that time. So <clears throat> next day, here he comes. And I'm like, done. He's going to shoot us. But the guy comes laughing. And he's like, why you threaten me? I didn't tell on you. And number one, and number two, you just paid the wrong guy. And I'm like, how much? He says, 250 I said, shit, is that the going price in, in, in Panama? <laughs> I just paid 250 for four guys. Now you want me to pay 250 for two guys? 
He says, your choice. I said, went through the same routine. Here's a number, code it, here's the code. The money will be delivered the next day. And sure enough, <clears throat> and then they came and got us and they put up against the wall and they took out a fire hydrant and they, because I mean, we stink. I mean, we have blood all over ourselves. I mean, crap, because there was no toilet. You had to shit by the wall. And once a, once a week or every other week, or I don't know how long they would take, like a fire hydrant hose, and there was a throw towards the back of the, of the cage. And uh, so that's how they would flush all the excrement from one cell to the other. So by the time they came to yours at the end, shit's just flying all over the place. Right? So anyway, it's, uh, so they, I, I tell you what, actually getting hosed down with the fire hydrant hurt more than all the tortures. Man, that shit hurts. I mean, it's like someone just shooting darts at you at a high speed. So they watch us down. They take us to the airport. And, of course, Interpol is waiting for us at the airport. Uh, he betrayed us. Interpol is waiting at the airport, and they take me to Miami. And they charge me with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America, give me $2 million bail, and I had just turned 23 years old. So that's where it all began. And then years later... You bump into Noriega in the federal prison system. Yeah, in Miami. Uh, right before I was to be released, they took they take you to the jail where you're close. So they took me to Miami. And uh, <clears throat> they had him in a cage. It's funny because uh, I don't know. I never did state time like you did. But in the federal system in Miami, MCC Miami, they had like a yard, which was almost like indoor. I mean, walled in, indoor. And... Uh, they had a cell in the corner and actually made it almost like a, he had his own exercise bicycle in there, but he was like, a, a, like I felt almost like going to a zoo and watching a freaking monkey. <coughs> so I walked up to his cell, not to his cell, to the bars where he was. I mean, everybody could walk up to him. And I said, uh, Manuel, because yeah, to me, he ain't no freaking general anymore. I said, do you remember me? He acted like he didn't know me. Maybe he don't remember. I said, dude, you don't look that tough in the monkey suit you got on. <laughs> I said, you're just like me now, buddy. So, yeah. And then a lot of people testified. And said, they, they wanted me to testify, but I didn't. I, look, it, it was his problem. But they want me to tell him that. I gave him 250000 I mean, everybody knew it. So, no big deal. But, you know, he was, he was, uh, he got what he deserved. You know, he was just, uh, you know, if you're going to be a gangster, be a gangster. If you're going to be law enforcement, be law enforcement. But just don't be both, you know? And that's, that's how I felt about him. So. so Carlos Leda, he agreed to testify against Noriega. And as a U.S. federal government witness, he, Carlos Leda admitted that the cartel gave $10 million to the CIA for the war in Nicaragua to get a, try and get a pass during the early days. So they were actually working with the CIA. What have, have you heard about how the CIA was um, sourcing this coke that they were, you know, arms for coke, ran contra scandal? I didn't know much about it because that was during the time I was in prison. But when I first got started, so let's go back to 76. Who really starts the drug trade in America? which was marijuana, right? Besides the heroin that was going on, I don't know for how many years in New York with uh, the French connection and the Italian mob. <clears throat> the, the marijuana crowd 
that started the marijuana, the big, big movers of marijuana in the early 70s in Miami, were a bunch of kids, Cuban kids, that had uh, all they wanted was to do go to Cuba. They, they were part of the Bay of Pig invasion, right? So all they wanted to do was to go to Cuba, invade Cuba, and get Castro out of power. So they were trained by the CIA and uh, in Mexico, different places. The CIA would give them a ship. And uh, as they were going out there, they get intercepted. And then later on, the CIA would give them another ship or the same ship in a different color. And then <clears throat> from the personal knowledge that I had, someone in, in that CIA at that time said, shit, let's teach this uh, Cubans how to smuggle marijuana. They're going to start making a lot of money. And when they do, they're going to forget about Cuba. Is that a myth or not? I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, all of a sudden, the Cuban, without knowing anything about smuggling, started bringing a lot of marijuana into the United States. And all of a sudden, they forgot about going to go to Cuba. Right? They started making a lot of money, living the high life, and all of that. <clears throat> so the word was, and I mean, uh, it's very notorious during my time, a guy named Monkey, Monkey Morales, who was a CIA agent, he was as corrupt as it could be. So the word was that that's who got the Cubans started, and that's who the Cubans were giving money to <clears throat> to do all their operations. So common sense would tell me that if you got this big budget, the Congress does not approve, where is the money coming from? You know, it doesn't fall out of the skies. So, but, you know, I, I never got into that part with any of that because I just felt that, I mean, even when I was offered to reach out, like to Monkey Morales, and I'm like, you know, when a person is double dealing, so let's say now he is betraying the government who he works for, What's it going to be that tomorrow he's going to betray me? So, you know, I never, I felt uncomfortable. You know, number one, if I got caught, I want to get caught for smuggling drugs, not for treason. <laughs> you know, none of that stuff. And, uh, and I definitely did not want to get involved with anything, buying off agents like a CIA. I mean, we bought law, local law enforcement left and right. I mean, go back and read the cases. <clears throat> Probably the toughest prosecutor Miami, uh, the United States ever had, Attorney General was Dana Reno. And look at the cases that she literally had to dismiss, you know, because you talk about, read, I don't know if you ever read the case, Video Canary, but read about that case. It was, uh, it was this guy who had an office uh, at the Coconut Grove Hotel, and he had a camera, and he filmed all those drug dealers in Miami. They arrested 150, 160 of them. They ended up letting them all go, because of the cases that were dropped because her head prosecutor, her head uh, prosecutor, not prosecutor, her head law enforcement guy was under everybody's payroll. So that was easy to buy. And you don't care. No one cares about local. But when you're at the federal level, man, it's just a lot of it, if you get arrested, becomes a big political thing. And where you can end up being able to work out a deal and, uh, and, and, and get off time, you can't do it if it becomes a public shame right because of police etc so i never i never dealt with that but yeah that paulo was involved later on i found out that he was involved with the with the cia that was a big big rumor i don't have no way of substantiate because i wasn't 
like I said, I didn't want to participate in any of that. To me, it was, hey, I'm a smuggler. You know? Yeah, we can, we can pay the campaign of a judge. We can buy a judge. We can buy a president of a Latin American country. No one gives a damn, you know? But, and honestly, to be 100% truthful, in the United States, I couldn't buy it. We tried <clears throat> on three occasions where we felt we had a good connection to get to a DEA, to an FBI agent. We tried. And actually, it was through a sheriff. But the thing that we, that we weren't able to, they never bit. And, 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 and what we were willing to pay for, Sean, was nothing real risky. It was simply let us know whenever there's an operation or my name pops up in any database or anything like that, right? Which at the end of the day, how, how would they get busted on something that I showed of me telling them, but it's their word against my word. So we felt that it was something that they would have an out if, if everyone, somebody else told, and, uh, and we never could get anyone to bite. So, so in my now, war are they corrupt people? There's corrupt everywhere, man. You know that. Yeah. In my war on drugs books, I wrote that the Median cartel was a legal construct so that the prosecutors had more weapons in, in America. Um, and Colombia was actually, every area of Colombia had its own boss. And then they just strung certain guys together to make the Medellin cartel. Yeah, and that's what the United States did, right? Because there was no Medellin cartel. Exactly for that. <clears throat> they, they, they created this. Actually, I think that even they come up with the cartel name. When, uh, remember uh, doing Jimmy Carter when they had the oil embargo? And they, and they talked about the uh, oil cartels. I think that's how they come up with the name. They saw that they organized. But the truth is, every there was, a, when I first got started, one organization, four guys and me. Uh, then originally by himself was Pablo Correa, which was huge. And then in 1984, when I get out, there was a lot. That's when Leather was there. That's when Gacha, Pablo, uh, different groups, like Castaños, you know, they were drug dealers, you know, all of them were. So they were all different. And, and, and a lot of them were jealous of each other. So everyone had their own routes. Everyone had their own pilots. Everyone had their own assassins, you know, uh, the whole infrastructure. That's why when they wrote in my book, the publisher wrote, U.S. head of all operations for the Medellin cartel, I got pissed. Because number one, yeah, I know that that probably helps you sell books. But number two, it's a lie. Because there was no Medellin cartel. There was different groups. Now, you go to Sinaloa, and yeah, you got the Sinaloa cartel, right? Uh, you know, El Chapo control all of that. And the Gulf cartel. Those are cartel. But today, in Colombia, never. Never. There was no such thing. And they were most of them jealous of each other, you know? And uh, they attest things. If I was to say during the height of Pablo, after he killed Frank, who was the most, the wealthiest and had the best organization? Gotcha. By far. By far. I would, I would say, and very close, very close in danger to Pablo. I'll tell you what happened to me with, with me. With a, we were one of the first people to take an airplane to Mexico. And I did it with him. It was his load, right? It was, uh, it was 200 kilos of mine. It was 400 kilos of his. And we were going to go to Juarez. And we are going to land in a ranch of a very famous musician, right? The guy that was our connection was the agent of a lot of the famous musicians in Mexico at that time. 
great guy. Aurelio was his name. But all of a sudden, the play, there's a, there, there was a big operation, a, federal, a federalist operation there, and we couldn't land. We, we, I mean, we landed the plane, but we couldn't cross the merchandise for a while. So the same night when the plane got there, we have a code, and I called uh, Gacha, and, uh, and I said, look, the family's safe, right? That's all we have to say. Perfect. But we know it landed. Next day, when they flew from El Paso, came someone to tell me the whole deal. Say, look, it's going to take about 20 days, but, but it's safe. <clears throat> you can come see it. You can check it out. It's all there. It's all stashed. We don't want to take a rest. So I called him. And I said, look, send me somebody, and, and, and we'll go to El Paso, and we'll cross and check it out. No, 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 need doctor. I've worked for you for a long time. I trust you. Fine. 29, he said, just call me when it's ready. So 28, 29 days later, we got the, we brought it to Miami and I called him to deliver it. And the deal is whenever I deliver at the same time, I would get my money, right? And we had a very, very sophisticated way of making deliveries. So when we get the money later and we're counting it, we realize that it was $400,000 short, you know, $1,000 a kilo short. So I called him, and this is how he was. So the guy never raised his voice. I don't know if this guy ever screamed in his life. I don't know if he had, well, I never heard it. He goes to me, he said, he said, doctor? Oh, so I said, thanks, and uh, when can I expect the rest? Well, I said that to his guy. His guy said, he says, this is all they told me, payment in full. So I called him, and, in, and we had codes, and we had uh, scramblers. I said, you know, we're $400,000 short. And he says, thank you. That's the cost for my merchandise being a month late. And hung up the phone on me. That's the end of the conversation, buddy. I called Manuel, and I said, look, man, this just happened to me. He's like, forget about it. Don't even try it. Don't even call him. Because just calling him to tell him, you're not going to settle for that, you're dead. So he would say to him, this is one way he operated a lot. You'd come to him and say, look, I want 50 kilos. And he would say to you, okay, Sean, how long do you want those 50 kilos for? You say, a month. He said, okay, uh, I'm going to give you six weeks. And uh, what he did is, you, six weeks later, you had to give him 55 kilos. He charged you 10%. Buddy, if 9 o'clock, the day of that six week, you were not there with the 55 kilos, at 10 o'clock you were dead. You couldn't come at 10 o'clock and say, I got your money now. No understanding, no patience, no nothing. Great to do business with him, but boy, you don't ever screw up because it was all by his rules. And, uh, but he didn't go around killing people like Pablo did. You know, probably if he kills you, he'll kill every male in your family. You know, Gasha wasn't like that. I mean, he killed a lot of people. He kept a, he kept a book with all the names of uh, everyone that he killed. And, but it was more business transactions, whereas Pablo was killing anyone that got in the way. I mean, there was a joke at one time where a cartoon where this guy is carrying a police officer and another Colombian says, where are you? He says, I'm going to the bank to cash this check. 
Because he's like, every police officer, I think it was $5,000 that he would give you for every cop that you killed. And when he went through Medellin at the beginning, dude, if you, if you even looked at his car, I mean, literally looked at his car and mentioned to everyone you saw him, you were dead. You and every male in your family. And uh, that's what ruined. And, you know, and <clears throat> when he decided to run for office, we thought he was crazy. But at the same time, we're wondering, like, is he really doing it because he really believes in helping the poor? You know, because he built all those cities, right? But what people don't realize is, he, he, yeah, he built them. He took credit for it. Maybe he did put some of his money, but he charged all of us. Anything he did, all of us had to pay. Everybody. Uh, that's how he got killed. You know, I mean, that's how, the, I mean, the war with the Cali cartel. You know, when, when Pacho Herrera was late, and then he's like, screw you. And, you know, and they, there goes a war, you know, because it should have been a war. Those guys, aside of Pacho, which was like him, you know, the other guys, the brothers, man, they were, they were business people, you know, they were not violent people at the beginning, but then, you know, how it goes, you kill one and then you end up having to kill more and more. And that's how they all end up dying. So to land in Mexico, did you have to get the green light from Felix Guiardo? You know, at that time, uh, I don't know who already, because we only brought in two loads through Mexico. We brought that one and the other one that I talked about in Black TV, where I get, you know, where Pablo puts a contract on me because we use one of his trips in, uh, outside of uh, uh, Matamorros, that town that's outside of Houston, I believe. And uh, the guy gets caught and then he blames me that I told him to use a strip. And I didn't even know nothing about it. So when Pablo sends this guy who's, his number one assassin at the time, who used to be the head of the operation in the U.S. for Frank, who Pablo killed, and who I helped a lot when Frank got killed. I helped him a lot, you know, and uh, in different ways. One of them was keeping one of uh, the sons in Miami with me. So when he comes to Miami and calls me that he's got a contract on me, and, and he knew, knowing me, and he's like, I meet him at Daily Mall. You know, his name was Victor. And uh, we called Pablo. And, and it was a lie. And uh, I, had a, I had a very strong reputation of not lying because I made it a point when I first got started telling all my people nobody gets killed for telling the truth, you know. And, and there was an incident back, I don't know if you saw that on Black TV, when Pablo proposed to me to uh, insure the loads. So he came up with this, I mean, the guy, literally, I think the guy, had he not been a drug dealer and had he gotten to college, he could have been anything. You know, the guy was pretty brilliant. And so anyway, he's like, we're going to start charging $10,000. We're charging $7,000 at that time. And I'm like, why $10,000? Well, we're going to insure the load. Now, I had never lost a load. Never. Not one. And... Uh, so I said, we never lose. Why would we insure a load? He said, well, what I'm going to tell people is, because again, so I'm bringing 200 for him, but I don't know who the 200 really belonged to. What he would do is, he'd get all the people to come in, and if the load was lost, or part of it was lost, everybody else is lost and not his. I mean, I know for a fact, I mean, there's a rumor going on that Paolo was informing with the DEA for years. For years, he turned in hundreds of loads. 
of everybody else's loads. But anyway, so he's like, what we'll do is we charge him 10000 Every third load, I'm going to tell him that the load got lost. No one's going to suffer because the insurance says, I'll give him the cocaine back in Colombia. So all they lost is a little bit of time. But at that time, cocaine was, I think, two to 3000 because this was towards 87 in Colombia. And he's like, but now we can sell it in Miami at retail, and we didn't have to put up a dollar. And if something really happens to it, then we don't lose anything. I'm like, you know, it's a great plan. We can make more money, but I'm not going to do it. And he's like, why? I said, because I don't participate in a lie. I said, because if today I do something with you lying to others, when is someone going to come on and tell you that I said something against you? It's a lie, and you're going to believe it because you know that George is capable of lying. So I didn't, and that's what ended up saving me doing that when that time happened with that load. Because I thought I said, number one, if I had known it was your strip, I would ask for it because you use mine. And I said, number two, when is someone going to tell you that I, you know, lied to you and you're going to believe it? So that's, uh, that saved me. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, and at the beginning it was Felix, you know, that was that was running everything over there i don't know very much after that because I, I when mexico really started getting big it was in 87 and at that time is when i walked away i walked away in february of 87 so and i walked away to i i moved away from miami because i knew you know like i tell people well, you want to change your life the first thing you do change your environment if i stay in miami that's all i know and that's what everybody knows and out of sight, out of mind, right? So I moved from, I didn't go back to Miami where I thought, I mean, I used to think that the sun would rise and fall in Miami. I love Miami. I didn't go back for three and a half, four years. And I was only 90 miles away because I didn't, you know, I didn't want no one to see me. I didn't want no one. Years go by. I get up in 94. I come to Miami to visit my, my parents in 95, 96. I'm at a gas station getting gas with my brother. And someone screams out my name. And it's like, and then he starts telling this guy, you see that guy? That, was, that guy was a legend. And I'm like, holy shit, man. I've been running from this all my life. And at a freaking gas station, I run into this guy. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so it's, it was a crazy world, not to say the least. Out of all of the factions of the so-called Medellin cartel, it seems like the Ochoa's got through the war with the least damage. I think only Fabio ended up in the feds. Why do you think that the Ochoas managed to get through it like that? Okay, number one, numerous factors. I always wonder why they even got involved in anything because their father was a multimillionaire in his own right. I mean, one of them studied at University of Miami. Uh, they were very educated kids. They came from a, a very structured family, and they were smart. I don't, believe, I don't believe all this thing about all the killings that people attest to them. Uh, there was killing that was attested to us, and I'm going to tell you this under every Bible. Never in my life did I take a human being's life or anything like that. Not because I didn't want to, because I'll tell you, there was three times I wanted to, to order the hit on three different people. 
you wake up in the morning and the first thing you hear, someone wants to kill you and you got power to wipe them out. But Manuel Garces, who started this whole thing, used to say to me, we can make a million dollars any day, but we can bring a life back. And I'm not a killer. I, I grew up on a good family, you know, with great value. So when, when they were able to make the deal, you know, in a, to go to prison, they did. And uh, I think that in, in, in honesty, I would, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they cooperate a lot with the government or not. You know, have you ever watched the series Pablo Escobar, El Patron del Mal? Yes. On Netflix. You know, it's the most realistic of all those series, right? We know Narcos is, like you say, the real reason after Narcos, you, you, you got so many facts, so much better than them. But again, they're entertainment, right? So and it's a good, I mean, I like it. I enjoy it. It's sad because I find myself rooting for the bad guy again. And uh, I was watching that series, Pablo Escobar, and I kept saying to myself, somebody is talking. Because they got that series, they got that whole soap opera so right. I mean, man, Sean, the guy even looked like freaking Pablo, man. The guy walked like Pablo. The guy kept his little notebook like Pablo did. I mean, it was crazy. And so many things that very few that happened in the series that very few people that I'm like, man, I mean, like, who the hell? Who the hell? Because I know there wasn't that many people left. And then at the end, I don't know if it's true or not. It's just my thinking and, and all respect to the shows. I never met them, never dealt with them. Nothing against them. I think one of them talked. And the reason is this. If you see throughout the series, though, especially towards the end, they keep portraying themselves as innocent in everything. Yeah, we didn't participate in this, or they didn't participate in that, or, they, you know, on and on, which, which they did, you know. But uh, I met a lot of the people. I, I was in jail with one of the main guy uh, that, was, that worked for them that actually was named Fabio Choa, too. And... Uh, most of their people that worked for them were good guys that I met. They were not those hardcore killers or anything like that. So, by no, number one, by no means were they more – did they have more money than Pablo? You know, I think, I think a lot of people had more money because, man, Pablo used to spend tons in, in all those assassins. Now, he made a lot of people pay up for it. But uh, I think out of all the groups – I would say that they were probably the most decent. And like I said, I had no dealings with them. Zero. Never brought a load with them. The closest we came was to buying one, to, uh, letting, to using one of their airplanes to bring a load from Colombia to Mexico because they had these Mitsubishis that had a huge range and they offered it to us. But I don't know uh, who Gacha got the plane from because he didn't have those planes that had that type of range that the Oshawas did but I think that they were more educated, you know. Uh, if they got involved bad in, in violence, probably was a result of their sister kidnapping, you know. That makes anybody do anything. But again, I have no, no dealings with them. My main dealings were prior to, prior to 80, was Manuel Garces, a guy that no one has ever mentioned, Jorge Odonez was... Probably one of the richest guy had a mansion in Colombia with a theater for 50 people. Very wealthy guy. Very decent guy. And uh, two other guys. 
And then uh, when I got out, mainly with, uh, first with Frank, that's the first person I started working with. Then he gets killed, I start working, uh, Manuel starts bringing in loads with uh, Gacha and Pablo. And that's the only people that, and then, I mean, I knew the Castaños well, you know, I met one of them in my house in Miami. Uh, you know, they became very, very violent when, when the brother got, one of the brothers got murdered. So, and then, you know, Pablo brought up on himself, you know, because he kept bringing, see, this is the thing. Had Pablo not made everyone that was with him, his enemies, I don't think nothing would have ever happened to him. Because let's be real, man. He's the only man in history to bring a country to his knees. <clears throat> he made them surrender. There's no ending for buts about it. And had he not killed those two brothers inside the prison, <clears throat> he could have done his time the way he was living it, you know? Prostitutes, luxury. But, and these are the two guys that grew up with him. And, and, and what went down went down. Nothing, nothing like it went down in Narcos. Nothing, you know? Uh, it's a different side of the story. Actually, he almost got killed that day. He almost got killed because one of those two pulled a knife on him, and that's how they ended up getting killed because one of Pablo's guys was close to him and had a pistol, and when the guy went to stab Pablo and he came like that close, the guy shot him in the head. Yeah, there was a lot of murder plots um, against Pablo in the cathedral. And he's, yeah, huge mistake going after the Moncados and the Galeanos. Did Popeye reach out to you, the hitman, before he died? Who? Popeye, Pablo's hitman. No, 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 never, never. Did no, you? And I mean, he was just a low life, man. Real, real low life. The guy that I knew very well, uh, and actually I met him in prison. I mean, not when I was in prison. When I, st I started working at the prison in Angola. I don't know if you ever heard about that prison where they made the movie Dead Men Walking. Well, Miguel Velez who killed Barry Seals. And uh, he and I became very close friends. And I'll tell you, uh, uh, the first time I went to speak there, God, I don't know how many, it was 20 some odd years ago. I went to speak at that prison. And when I finished speaking, I, uh, it was, I was talking to the warden like at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning and this guard comes and tells the warden that this inmate wanted to talk to me. And uh, so I went to his cell at 2.30 in the morning. And I'm going to tell you, Sean, it was the craziest thing in the world. You know, the guy was very, people, very few people know that Miguel Velez had a master's in architecture. And that, uh, that one of uh, his... Uh, one of his aunts was the mother superior of the Vatican. So <clears throat> I'm looking, and he's got this unbelievably beautiful painting, but it was the devil playing chess with the Virgin Mary. And the Virgin Mary was dressed like a stripper. Man, he was so, so dark. <clears throat> so he asked me, he said, I know who you are, and I just want to ask you this question. I, because at that time, in that prison, whenever someone spoke, they put it throughout the, they had an audio system that would went. He was in CCR, continual cell restriction, right? In a little cell, one by one meter by two and a half meters. He'd been there for years and years. 
So <clears throat> he said, I know you are. And I just want to ask you a question. Do you think that people like you and I can change? And I'm like, yeah, I really do. He said, I don't think so. We're so bad and done so many bad things. I don't think we can ever change. And I kept visiting him three, four times a year and riding with him for years. This was 19, I want to say 1998, 99. Eventually, <clears throat> he starts to come around. He starts to paint different. Then he asked me that could I do him a favor and talk to a warden and bring him to general population. So <clears throat> his file said, let this son of a bitch die in that cell. Never let him out, right? So everyone's, because everyone's afraid of two things. Number one, he would murder someone. He had no problem stabbing anybody now. <clears throat> and number two, will he escape? You know, the American thought Pablo Escobar was going to send the airplane. But dude, Pablo Escobar is already dead. <laughs> Come on, man. The guy now is in his 50s. He's not a young kid anymore. So I talked to Warren, and I gave him a word that I said, I said Miguel, I'm going to give him a word. Dude, if you try to escape, I'm out of the business, man, but I swear to God, I'll go back and we'll hunt your ass down. You can't do this shit to me. But see, a guy like that is a man of his word. When he gives his word, you can go and die, which is, it was so hard for me, Sean, to see now that in my world, we were the bad people. We were the most honest people I ever met. Shit, today you don't know who to trust. So we got him out into general population. Then he ends up writing and, and starts, you know, turning his whole life around. He starts painting beautiful paintings. And uh, then I get a call from the warden one day, and we were just starting to build the chapel. It's called Our Lady of Guadalupe. You can look it up on the internet. It's just gorgeous. Anyway, uh, and the warden called me and says, hey, Miguel has cancer. Early stages, we can cure him easily. But I said, he told you he doesn't want to get healed, right? And he says, yeah. How do you know? I said, look, <clears throat> Miguel feels that he's turned his life around. God's forgiven him. And this is a gift. Early parole. He says, no, you guys can't talk to him because we can be in a lot of exposure. If he dies, the family can show us that we did nothing. I said, I will, but I'm going to tell you, he's going to tell me the same thing I just told you. And sure enough, Sean, I go see him. He hugs me. I said, Miguel, I'm not even going to ask you to do what they told me to come here. I just came here because I found out. And I said, I said, I know what you're thinking. He said, he said yeah, God gave me a gift, early parole. <clears throat> and he starts going down, Sean, health-wise. We have finished painting the inside of the, of the prison. Man, I should have pulled up a picture. I could show you a picture uh, with him in the prison. But I'll send them to you. I'll email them to you. So the inside is finished. And, he, and Miguel says to me, tell the warden, I want to be able to go and paint something there. Now, this time the guy's dead. I'm 99% dead. Uh, he couldn't even get out of the bed. I'm like, <clears throat> how are you going to paint anything? How are you going to get on a scaffold? I mean, you know. And he's like, no, I want to make this offering. I want to make this offering. And I go to Warren. I said, Warren, you know, take him there. Let him paint a little circle on the wall, whatever. I thought he had no energy to do anything else. 
<clears throat> he goes there, and all of a sudden, Sean, we thought that God did a miracle. The freaking guy gave all his energy like he'd never been sick. And I'll send you a picture of him on the scaffold. Blame, because he pays Jesus. He does the best altar in the world. He pays Jesus between the two thieves, but he pays the one thief with an angel ministering to him and the other thief with the devil. I mean, great. And then he painted, he painted himself into the, into the mural. <laughs> and I'm like, my God, God healed this man. He thought he was repentant. He made this offering. God healed him. A week later, he died. Oh. A week later, he died. Wow. And, you know, he told me stories that are <clears throat> that is really interesting because we think that only bad things happen to bad people, but good people can end up doing bad things. You know, he says when he was a young kid, he graduated from college, master's degree. The guy is not barely surviving, right? Which is the problem we find ourselves in America right now. You know, we got the highest unemployment in history, and the stock market is going to the roof. Doesn't take common sense to figure out real simple. The rich get richer, the poor just disappear. And he's like, all my friends are making this money. They didn't even go to college. They got cars, girls. I can't even afford to take a girl out to dinner. So he says, a friend of mine comes one day and says, come, come with me. I got to go do a little errand. He had no idea they were going to kill somebody. So his friend kills this person. And then he's like, why didn't you ever say something to me? Why didn't you say nothing? He's like, he was a child molester. And Miguel said, you know, after that, I didn't care because I just felt I wasn't killing bad people. And he got so crazy that when he went to the Salvation Army, he actually thought he was going into an army base. Look <laughs> this guy. And no, nobody would take that hit. And that hit, was, that hit was put on by Pablo, nobody else. I'll tell you that right off the bat. Pablo got pissed when, when uh, Barry took the pictures of Pablo loading that airplane. I think it was in Nicaragua, right? Yeah. And, you know, and that's it. That day he sealed his, uh, but it wasn't, we're not just sure. It was Pablo who ordered that hit. I know that for a fact. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, he was crazy. But, you know, he ended up becoming a hell of a good guy after that. Right before he died, we went up to the prison, and his, the warden brought him up to, in that prison, they have a big ranch house, which is where all the celebrities, a lot of celebrities go there, because it's a very notorious prison. They filmed a lot of a Monsters Walk. A ball was filmed there. So he's like, all he wanted was my wife to cook him some Cuban food. And that was actually like, Technically, his last meal. Mm. And, uh, but uh, it was a crazy life. He left me his memoirs. I still haven't read it. Wow. Handwritten. I'll, I'll, get the guts, I'll get the guts to read it any day now. But, uh, yeah, he left his entire, uh, as a matter of fact, when the people approached him about uh, helping uh, in the movie American Made, he refused. And told me all about it. And uh, he left it to me. He said, look, maybe this will help somebody, some kids down the road one day. But I tell my wife, I said, shit, if I read, I got to read. Someone might ask me what happened. I was, eyes that don't know, heart that does not feel. <laughs> <laughs> what were the Cali Cartel bosses like? You know, 
I met one of them way back when I think it, I think that it even came out in a trial. There was a trial in Tampa where one of the guys that used to work for us testified against a guy named Mario Valencia. And uh, Mario was my same age and a good guy, good kid. And my only dealing was it was his farm in Colombia where we made the pit stop coming from Bolivia. And he and his brother were good guys. I mean, they, the brother owned a big, or still does, I believe they're still alive. Mario's still in prison. I, I, I refused to testify against him. Uh, and uh, he was uh, decent. They were not, I mean, from everything that I know of people that know them well, they were all business people. They owned big uh, factories in uh, Cali. Uh, Pancho Herrera is the one that was cut from the same thread as Pablo was. So that, that was a big clash between them, you know? And, and, and Pancho, again, at the same time, he was part of that group, and, but Pancho was trying to convince others that ended up becoming part of the Pepe's to kill Pablo. This was before, even before Pablo killed the two brothers, uh, the, the guys in, uh, at the prison in uh, La, La Catedral. So I don't think if Pablo had ever killed those kids, they would have ever, ever, the, the Pepe's would have gone against them. But, you know, they're in there and they're like, these are the closest guys to him, you know, he owed them. He owed, number one, they found those kilos that he refused to give back to one of them. And then he owed the other one like $30 million. So that's, that's how, you know, ended up the whole war and ended up bringing them down. Because they're like saying, hey, you know what? If we kill them, none of us, none of us is immune. Here we are, you know, and then he kept, as he felt like it, he kept increasing what he called the tax or the tariff. You know, at the beginning, no one cared to give him the money to because, you know, logically, he was fighting the war. It was his face, right? He was the one that was uh, threatening people, uh, you know, on the phone and in television cameras and all that crap. So people were like, yeah, yeah, we'll pay because nobody wanted to get extradited because that law, it is the most irrational law in the United States system. If, if any law makes the United States corrupt, that law makes it corrupt. The conspiracy law, which you know it. I went to prison twice, okay, Sean, without, without a tape, without a picture, without a, a little bit, of, without a, a, a minuscule part of a grain of cocaine. Twice. The first time they arrested me, I stayed in jail in Miami six months on a sworn complaint, no indictment, because nobody would indict me. And then when the judge finally says to the prosecutor, there's no indictment, I'm going to release him. I go to the hearing and there was no, no indictment. They took my case to the Southern District, the Middle District, and the Northern District of Florida, and none would indict me. What were they going to indict me for? There's no cocaine anywhere. I didn't do anything in the United States. So the Middle District of Georgia indicts me, puts me together with the pilots, the head of the pilot was a Jewish guy named Harold Rosenthal, great guy, stand-up guy. Four years earlier, before I met him, 
he disappeared on a case. He faked his own death, left the country. When we came back, he goes in front of the judge, and the judge says, welcome back, Mr. Rosenthal. And he looked at the judge and said, Your Honor, I'm the second Jew to come back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole court had just cracked up. <laughs> but the guy was an unbelievable guy. Anyway, so they, all of a sudden, they said, I'm part of their organization. Dude, I just met the guy a month earlier. How the hell am I going to be part of his organization? And uh, they kidnapped the captain of the Bolivian Air Force, who was our contact with Roberto Suarez. They bring him to the United States. He goes to trial with us. He gets found innocent. He's the one that sold George Valdez the drugs. He gets found innocent. And I get found guilty. I'm like, shit, if he didn't sell anything, what the hell did I buy? <laughs> All on conspiracy. So Pablo was saying is, you can't try me in the United States for something that is not a crime in my country. You know, like being tried in India because you killed a cow in Colombia, you know? So he's like, that's not going to happen. And he fought the extradition, right? And he fought and fought it and got it reversed. And uh, at the expense of a lot of lives, a lot of innocent, innocent people. Because where the other cartel people, you see them kill, you see all the war, all the drug wars going on. They're not killing us. Yeah, an innocent person might die. I'm not saying. Listen, more innocent kids die in America on a drive-by shooting among gangs in the United States than innocent people die in, uh, in a lot of the foreign countries from the cartels. Now, with Pablo, it was different. He didn't give a shit. Supreme Court, you know, judge again? He blew up the whole building. Every judge killed every judge. Then they had to wear hood. Cops killed them all. I mean, he didn't care. So it didn't matter if he was in front of his kids, in front of his family. And if he killed the, the father, he's going to kill the children because the children are going to become, they're going to grow up. That was his theory. And he had all those people that he literally took out of the ghetto where he was. And he got the credit for building them houses and hospitals and all that, which he did. He initiated the whole thing. We all contributed to it, probably more. <clears throat> but who's a hero now? You know, that little town where he's from, man. You know, Columbia was one of the last places to uh, legalize abortion. So if you don't want your child, you just go there and you put that baby in a basket in that corner of that town because police wouldn't even go in there. So all of a sudden, he's building them. They're living in cardboard boxes and crap. And he's building them the best soccer field in Colombia. He's building them schools, hospitals. He's building them houses. Who's the hero? Who's God? Pablo. So if God says, kill somebody, well, that's what he's gonna, they're going to do. Because he's the one that fed them and housed them. Whereas the government did what? Steal. You know? That's what they do. That's what, that's what the problem with the Latin American government. The problem that happens in Cuba. Why did communism come to Cuba? Such a rich country. My dad, I used to tell him, because 95% of the wealth is owned by 5% of the people. So all of a sudden, you come, what's going to happen in America? The same thing is going to happen in America. I, I, I venture to say in 10 years, there's never going to be a conservative in public office in America, ever. Why? Because you keep promising people stuff Give them nothing, you know? The poverty level in America, I think the middle class has disappeared. I mean, what is it when they shut down, 85% of Americans don't have $400 in savings? My company used to do catastrophic work, right? And people say, those people are stupid. Why don't they leave a hurricane? A hurricane gives you warning. Why don't they leave? I said, really? Those people have never put a, never filled a tank of gas in their life because they go with a dollar, $2. 
where the hell are they going to go? They wouldn't even have gas to get out of the state. They got to stay. And, and we don't see that. You know, one, one out of every six children in America going hungry when we have an enormous obesity problem in America. You know, who's this virus killing? People that are in bad health, diabetes, obesity, you know, pre-existing condition. We spend billions, like you say, in the war on drugs. And then a lot of Americans can't afford to go to a doctor. How many people now are, you know, rationing penicillin because they can't afford it? I used to buy Voltaren. I was doing Ironman with my wife. And in Mexico, there's all the athletes. It's like a Bengay called Voltaren, B-A-L-T-O-R-E-N. Well, in Mexico, I go to the grocery store and buy it for $5. In the United States, you need a prescription, so that's 150 bucks, and it was $75. You know? So, yeah. I tell people when they used to say, well, Mexico's so corrupt. I said, well, we got the same amount of corruption in America, except here we call it lobbyists. You know, over there, they're just more bold about it. <laughs> they're just taking, don't give a crap. But here, look, Sean, what do they say now? It takes a billion dollars to run for president? Think about that number. Think about that. Unless you're uh, Mike Bloomberg and, and, or Jeff Bezos or any of those guys that can say, I'll throw a billion dollars away because it doesn't matter. I got so many more. A regular person? Forget about it. George, you've been very generous with your time. I've just got one final question um, to the young people watching this. Pablo Escobar's son says he gets messages every day from young people saying, I want to be like your dad. How can I be like your dad? And he's like, no, no, no. What do you say to young people who've watched Narcos and they've got gangsteritis? You know, and I tell, thank you for giving me this opportunity, Sean. And this is something that is my mission. I tell people, you know, Everybody thinks that when you have all this excess, I was making a million dollars at the age of 21 years old. I had cars. I dated the most beautiful women in the world. I had private jets, mansions. I had wealth that very few people ever imagined. I was the emptiest human being in the world. Well, we, what I tell people is, is, is something that is real simple. It is a lie that more money and more power and all that is going to get you there. The life, the, we were thousands. There's, there's maybe a handful of us alive from that world. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. It is fun, but it's not lasting. And it's not lasting, and it has enormous consequences. And the laws today are set up totally against you. So for the young person that feels like they want to become a Pablo Escobar, listen, we were the scum of the earth. There's nothing about us that you need to imitate. Try to become, try to get an education. So the people that might not like you is fine, but they will respect you. If you don't have an education, you're nobody. And I'm here to tell you, for me, when I had everything in the world and I was empty, I hated women. I couldn't understand why people were happy married when I, I dated the most beautiful supermodels in America and I hated them all. For me, I felt that I had a hole inside of me that for me, it was only able to be filled when I gave my life to God and, and, and I let the Jewish carpenter change the most heart of all hearts. I never cried before. People said I had eyes run through my veins. I cried now at girly movies. I cried with Coco. So it's not, it is a lie. The American dream that people are selling you, that you'll be happy when you have all those watches, you'll be happy when you have the big car. The wealthiest human being that I know in this world are not the ones that have the most, are the ones that need the least. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. If you're miserable, you can make a million dollars or a hundred dollars, you're going to be miserable. Find joy and happiness in your family, 
find joy and happiness in your kids, don't imitate the bad guys. Look, I catch myself. I understand. You watch Narcos, and I catch myself rooting for the bad guy, and then I catch myself. There's nothing. Look at that as entertainment. There's nothing to be proud of. The best thing is, at the end of, at the, end of the world, at the end, when, when history is written, I say this all the time. When, two things I say. When history is written, will history ever remember your name? History will not remember your name for nothing else but impacting another human being's life. And when I tell people, you want to see the wonders of life? Go to a hospital and watch the value of life. Go to prison and value. Watch the value of freedom. Go to a cemetery, a hospital health, prison, freedom, and go to a cemetery and watch the value of life. The, the, the soil we walk in today will be the ceiling we lay under one day. So don't sell out. Shortcuts, never going to get you there. It's a better a little bit. Find joy in the free things in life, in family, in education, in good friends. Do not associate yourself with those people that are doing bad. Because if you think for a minute, all those people that tell you, oh, you saw this. Um, I, see, I read that in your book. Those people that tell you, oh, don't worry. You go to prison. I'll stand for you. Bullshit. The minute... I had hundreds of people. The minute I got arrested, they ran. They could have been Olympic runners, and they were all fat. The minute you got arrested, you know who's going to be there for you? Your mom and dad, period. For me, I was blessed also that I had a brother that took my parents to every visit I had because he was the most unselfish person. And he finally wrote me a song, The Hungry Years. People listen to that song, you know, and see how, you know, the things we yearn for ends up becoming not what we really believe that it was. So education is critical. If you're not educated, you will be controlled. If you, if you are educated, you're going to be able to, to make decisions that will impact your life for positive. Hard work always, always outdoes talent. Sacrifice and hard work, you'll make it. The world, the world is open for the youth. Our youth can rule the world. Don't sell out because it's not there. You're going to get there if you ever get there because 99% of the people are going to die in the climb. But if you get there like I did, you'll find out there's nothing there. Read my book, Coming Clean, Narco Mindset, and you will realize whatever, everything that shines, it ain't glitter. And it's not gold. And in the description box below this video are links to George's stuff, including his book, if you want to get that. And some people may have questions and want to contact you. Do you have a website or is there any web yes. on the socials? Yes. I have a website called www.jorgevaldez, like the name you see there with an S, phd.com, jorgevaldezphd.com. It'll say join our community. If you do, it'll send you a copy of my latest book for free. Uh, I am on a YouTube channel, George Valdez, Medellin Cartel, George Valdez, PhD. And uh, on LinkedIn, you can email me. I answer every email myself. We're on Instagram. If you're on my webpage, all the links are there. And uh, if you end up buying my book, just know that every book you buy, two of them get sent to prison. I don't keep a dollar of anything that I do. I'm doing this because I want to make a difference in the world. Like Sean, you're changing the world, but you're changing one life by people listening to you. And I hear the comments and, and, and I heard your podcast where people threaten you. That's sad because you're making awareness 
of things that people need to be made aware of. And the sad part is not a lot of people have the balls like you do to say it. So I applaud you with that. And uh, keep up. I love to come back after this series airs in November because there's going to be a lot of things interesting there that you'll like to talk about. Count on me for any uh, information you need. Uh, and again, you know, go to my website, PhD.com or watch the YouTube video. I got over 100 videos. And it's all about, it's a different message. It's not about glorifying the world. It's really about making a difference in the world. It's a fleeing moment. We're here today, gone tomorrow. Live today like the last day of your life and live it good. And by living it good, it's not with money. The, the biggest joy in my life came when I came from Cuba and I didn't have money to eat. But my family was together and uh, we did things together. We struggled together. We cried together. A family that struggles together stays together. That's heartwarming. And like I said to the viewers, all the links to Georgie's stuff are in the description box. All of his socials will be down there. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logo, bottom right-hand corner. Huge thank you to all people who've donated. Those links are in the bottom of the channel as well, below the, in the box. And please put your questions and comments and let us know what you thought about this in the comments section below. So again, um, thank you very much, George, for being so generous for your time. Look forward to doing a part two later in the year, and I'm, I'm sure I'll have a lot more questions for you by then. All right, Sean. God bless you. Have a good day, brother. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.